Inside Julia's Kitchen is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill. Employee-owned Bob's Red Mill offers organic, gluten-free, and stone-ground products. With Bob's Red Mill, you're not just getting quality, you're getting healthy food that actually tastes amazing. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. This show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people who we have the great fortune of learning from on a regular basis. On today's show, we welcome Doug Mardrum, the owner and director of winemaking, the Mardrum Wine Company in the San Inez Valley. In this episode, we'll learn about the impact of the recent wildfires and mudslides, which have plagued the Santa Barbara region, about the Margarine Wine Company, and we'll also hear what Doug's Julia moment is. Stay tuned to learn what is a Julia moment. We'll be right back. In our first segment on Inside Julia's Kitchen, we launched the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Many people forget that Julia Child was a Californian. Her connection to Southern California was profound, going back to her childhood vacation spent at the beach near Santa Barbara. She returned often, settling permanently in the Montecito area of Santa Barbara in her final years. It was then, in the early 2000s, when she became a fixture in and around Santa Barbara, eating out frequently at local restaurants like the Wine Cask, and famously shopping for hot dogs at Costco. Many a Santa Barbaran has a story about the time they met Julia Child wandering the aisles of Costco. For me personally, Santa Barbara is a very special place. Not only is it the Foundation's headquarters, it's where I spent time with Julia, and also an extended network of friends who are like family. It's easy to fall in love with Santa Barbara, as it's a place of great natural beauty, and has a very relaxed, welcoming atmosphere. But starting in early December of last year, Santa Barbara was threatened by the encroaching Thomas wildfire that began in neighboring Ventura County, eventually burning more than 440 acres as it crossed into Santa Barbara County near Carpinteria and Montecito to become the largest wildfire in modern California history. This is a wildfire that burned for more than a month. California wildfires often pack a double whammy as the conditions that cause them to become severe, dry autumn winds blowing in from the desert, lead into what is typically the rainy season in California. Those rains can lead to mudslides, as parched land can't easily absorb rain. This effect is worsened after land is burned, but no one could have imagined the destruction unleashed by a microburst of rain which fell exactly over the worst of the burn area in Montecito in the wee morning hours of January 9th of this year. For those of us at the Foundation, we have lost friends, and we have friends who have lost their homes. So it's been quite a rough time. 
So we thought it was important to share with all of you firsthand what happened, how the area is recovering, and more importantly, what the impact has been on the winemakers, wine growers, and food producers in the region. Doug Mardrum is a man with his finger on the pulse of what's happening in Santa Barbara, but also someone who lived to tell his own tale of survival. Welcome to the podcast, Doug. Hi, Todd. Good to be here. I'm really glad you are here. Thanks so much for agreeing to share your personal story, and I imagine this has been one of the more difficult or trying times of your life. I would say that that is true, um, but many many people, of course, uh, suffered far worse. Uh, but uh, we uh, we certainly had a dramatic uh, dramatic event. So uh, I was really hoping because I think it really someone's personal story, especially if they're willing to share it, really kind of brings to life the the magnitude of what happened. Would would you share with with all of us what happened to you and your family specifically in those wee morning hours on the ninth? The, the Thomas Fire uh, was threatening Montecito, and literally every home up against the uh, up against the national forest had a fire truck in it, and it burned right down to every home, ours included, right all the way up into our backyard, um, where they they saved our house. Uh, but that was in December, and we we had quite a bit of smoke damage in our house, and and we were we were evacuated, of course, because of the fire. But we really couldn't get back in until uh, January seventh, when the, the work had been completed to you know clean all the all the smoke and the debris uh, out of the house. And then, of course, uh, another evacuation order came because of this in, uh, impending rainstorm. So, so that was like twenty four hours after you were back in. Yeah, 24 hours after we were back in, there was another evacuation order. Not quite as serious as the first one. And the first one, uh, when the fire was threatening us, the sheriff literally pounded on our door and said, get out of here. And we, you know, we, we, you know, we had some time to pack up and we, we, we drove away. Um, here, you know, it was a little more, everyone was sort of hanging out and the fire guys, I was talking to the fire guys and, and, uh, you know, it wasn't, it didn't seem, and is, is any, anybody probably in America or in the world, you know, we I look at the weather all the time, especially in my business, uh, and it's almost always wrong. Uh, <laughs> so I just, you know, we we knew there was a rainstorm coming, but we decided to not uh, to not evacuate, which was not a good decision. Um, uh, so then, you know, that that night came, and we were sleeping, and we heard the rain, and it was very very powerful, and it woke us up, and we decided to get up and check to see how the house was doing, and of course we were having some. Uh, some rain coming through some of our our back doors, uh, so we decided to get dressed and uh, and clean up the house. It was you know probably three thirty or four in the morning. Doug, maybe you should just be- back up one second and just explain sort of loosely where your house is because I think that also sort of matters in terms of the terrain and stuff. Well, we're right on a creek called San Ysidro Creek. Uh, you know, Montecito and Santa Barbara are called the American Riviera because we have this ocean this beautiful city, and then jutting straight up uh, into the sky are these beautiful mountains behind us. And they each have their own little canyons, incredible hiking, uh, beautiful uh, trails with water and po- a little, uh, little, little, little uh, backflows of water you can, you can go into. We have hot springs. We have cold springs. Uh, it's really quite a beautiful place, and we really love to hike. Uh, but we were right in the... We're right on the San Ysidro Creek, right about ooh, maybe eight or nine houses from the National Forest. 
Yeah, so you're you're more or less, so to speak, at the top of Montecito. Exactly, and in, and in fact, that's in the top part got less hit than the bottom part. Believe it or not, the we were in the mandatory evacuation, and then Highway 192, which sort of bifurcates the Montecito from the upper part to the lower part, was not in mandatory, uh, and most of the fatalities and most of the homes that were destroyed were in the non-mandatory evacuation zone. Believe it or not. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, East Valley Road is 192, is that right? Yeah, East Valley Road is 192. So we were up, uh, you know, we were getting getting some towels on some of the water that was coming through, through the back doors, and then we heard this just horrendous rumbling, uh, you know, as strong as any earthquake I've ever been into. The, the house was shaking, and and it was the essentially the mountainside boulders rolling down the canyons uh, coming 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 towards us. Uh, we we just sort of looked at each other and 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 ran. We didn't grab anything. We ran out to our car. As we were as we were trying to get our uh, lovely, wonderful, but very very scared golden retriever into the car, uh, the the most apocalyptic thing that's you couldn't I couldn't we just couldn't know what was going on. There was a huge uh, gas explosion. One of the boulders had broken a gas line about two houses away from us, a main gas line that supplies all of Montecito, and it erupted in a, in a fireball that was, you, know, you, just, you just couldn't believe there was this huge amount of rain coming down. It was hot, and it was bright, and that sort of... And, and this is the middle of the night, what, it, so it's pitch black, right? And it's what time? Uh, it was pitch black and, and raining. Like Until rain. the fireball. All of a sudden the fireball, uh, you know, just was it lit everything up, which helped our escape quite a bit. Uh, and also, I think, woke up a lot of people in our community that, that impending doom was coming, and they were able to uh, recognize, be awake instead of be asleep uh, when, when their houses were struck. Um, and was it only you and your wife, Marnie, and the dog who were home? Yep, just, just, the, just us. And so then we, we, you know, we peeled out of our house and up towards, uh, we had to go actually towards it before we could go away from it. And we, you know, we zigzagged through some rocks. We had to cross one creek, which had a, a bunch of rocks and boulders in it. My car got quite a, quite a bit of damage underneath it. Uh, and then we turned down the, the road towards East Valley, uh, where we ran into a, a guy actually literally running down the street in his underwear. Uh, and we picked him up, and then a gal with a, a little kitten and a jacket on, and we picked her up. And then we turned right like we would normally leave Montecito, and there we, we, that creek that was by our house now was just about a five-foot wall of water and debris and homes, and and it was just astounding to see it. We wouldn't normally have seen it except the fireball just lit up everything. just like. And it was still burning at this point up the... The hill. Still burning, about a 300, 300 foot high uh, uh, flame. So God, we, we turned around and like went the other way, but we weren't able to get out the other way either, and ended up spending the night at a at a neighbor's house who was on higher ground with about ten other people who had escaped, and and all of their stories were were more dramatic than ours. Um, Jeez. Uh, and were you, you so? Did you have to leave your car stranded on East Valley, or were you able to drive? No, it we to were this able person? to get the car up these up these folks' driveway. Uh, the cars, all the cars behind us on East Valley, we couldn't figure out what they were doing because they were sort of like spinning around, and we thought they were turning around, and they, they were they were stuck in a big, big mud flow. And then the sheriff, uh, uh, there was a sheriff's car that we were following in front of us, and he got 
he started sliding sideways and pushed against the tree. So we um, we didn't follow him anymore. Uh, mm. But a guy, do, a guy do you have a truck or an SUV or something? Or are you in a regular we were sort of car? Backing up and I was started backing up and moving forward to try and not get stuck in the mud. And uh, and he came down and said, "Hey, you should come up to this house. We're we're up here and we're safe." Uh, so he helped me clear boulders, and, and uh, we, we managed to get up uh, up that driveway and, and into that house, um, which is where we And w- were you driving a truck or an SUV? Or no, really? I, have a, I have a Range Rover. Uh, my wife oh, actually oh, oh. recommended that we take a picture of it and send it to him after. Uh, you should have seen it after all that happened. There were scratches and mud everywhere, and, and thank them for saving our lives. Because literally when we were coming out of our house, some of the stuff we would have crossed over, uh, I don't think a regular... Vehicle could have made it. No, I, yeah, I was going to say. Well, yeah, that's a testament to that, that it is. It is truly in there. That it. Wow. That I mean, just what amazing luck. The most dramatic couple that was at our house was a, a about a seventy-five-year-old man, and and uh, he had mud up to his chest, and he had literally uh, uh, his wife was downstairs. He was upstairs, and he heard her screaming, and he went downstairs. The entire downstairs of their house was filled with mud. And she was in her wheelchair. She, had, she has MS. She was stuck against the, between the kitchen table that had pressed her wheelchair up against the wall. And he managed to uh, get her out, throw her over her shoulder, and hike up to uh, up to the house we were in. And they were totally inconsolable. Uh, you know, they were in shock. We had them wrapped up in blankets, and uh, you know, they just lost their house, and they just barely escaped with their lives. The, the sort of the sort of silver lining of that story is when daybreak happened. You know, I had my dog still. We had our we had our golden retriever, and he spent so much time with them, and he was they were hugging him and petting him. And then they, uh, when we all got out uh, and they got helicoptered out, uh, they went to a friend's house and they were telling their friend about how they couldn't have made it without this dog. And he goes, "Oh, whose dog was it?" And they're like, "Oh, some winemaker guy up in San his Valley, <laughs> Doug Mergerum, or something like that." And he's like. He immediately picks up the phone and calls us and says, you know who's at our house? And you know whose dog helped save them? And uh, it was just sort of a sweet moment that they, uh, we didn't really realize how much the dog played a part in their, in their uh, uh, being able to handle the whole, the whole thing. Well, that, that's, that's a hopeful silver lining in what must have been an unbelievably terrifying evening. It was a terrifying night. And there was just, there was, there's, there's just story after story after story. And, it's interesting, even yesterday we had a community event, which was called the Kick Ash Bash. About 10,000 people came to it, and Katy Perry sang, and a lot of the people in the community got together and had this big sort of party to raise money for the for the for for people who, who didn't have insurance and people whose homes got destroyed. And, to, uh, and it was for the first responders. So first responders from all over California came with their kids, and there was a big picnic and food and and events for the kids and uh it was just a just an incredible event and really you know our, our community is incredibly strong and and uh, we've been uh you know everyone's hugging each other and people are people are working really really hard there's a one group that goes out almost every day called the bucket brigade that goes and digs out people's homes because it's still you know if you drove up to santa barbara right now from los angeles you, you know you would you wouldn't really notice anything and santa barbara the city is thriving and doing well and we're you know tourists are coming back of course but up in the hills behind Montecito, there's still homes that are completely immersed in mud. And I think the county and city authorities have really been working to try and get the creeks cleared so that if we do have another rain, we don't have the kind of devastation we had. So they've, they've, 
we've dug out. And and how I mean, you sort of answered my next question, which is how are things now in and around Montecito? So it sounds like it's starting to return to normal, and then actually Santa Barbara proper wasn't badly affected. Santa Barbara proper was not affected. It was really isolated to the small town of Montecito, which is just south of south of Santa Barbara, and the four or five creeks that run down from those hills uh, through our through our community. Um, yeah, you, you know, the shops in Montecito, the lower, the, it's called Coast Village Road, is one of the shopping areas, and then we have the Upper Village. And, you know, you really wouldn't notice anything except, if, you know, if you went on some of the side roads or you went where some of the creeks uh, uh, ran through. Uh, there, there it's kind of still a war zone. There's still a lot of recovery and a lot of work to be done. Uh, but they're working fast and furious to, to get rid of the debris and the, and the mud and uh, and you know it's it, it'll we'll, we will recover. It'll be it's a beautiful beautiful place to live, and uh, everyone's you know everyone's very keen on on getting getting things back to normal. Have they have they even said how long it'll be before you can be back in your house? Um, so we're doing the remediation. You know, our, the, the, the mud came right up completely against the back of our house, which faces the mountain. And so some of those, uh, our back bedrooms, have the floors have to be pulled up and the walls have to be taken down. And it went into the kitchen, and so we had to take the cabinets and stuff out of the kitchen and the floors up there, too. Um, you know, it's going to be probably six more months until we get back uh, in our in our house. And, um, and the houses that are completely destroyed, I don't know how long it's going to take take to get those rebuilt. Uh, I would say for us, it'll take a year or two to get our, our yard back together. We have, we have a very changed landscape uh, with our little idyllic creek turning into a, a big gorge. But, um, you know, we're, we're, we're working on it. And I, you know, I really believe, you know, for, for a lot of us, uh, it's, it'll, it'll be a, it'll be, it's a horrible experience, but it's, a, it's you know, you just rebuild and, and regroup and uh, we're not leaving. No one's leaving. Uh, quite frankly, yeah. Well, I mean, it certainly brought out the, the the strong sense of community that was already there, and and only made it stronger. I mean, we, we do have to stress Montecito itself is a pretty small place. Is it how many people? Is it five thousand something like that? Uh, we're about when the full evacuation was in uh, after the mudslides. There's about eighteen thousand people, um, but everyone knows everybody, and and it is a very small town, and. Um, but yeah, it's uh, there's everyone's wearing their Montecito strong buttons, and and everyone's you know helping each other out. And of course, the best thing people can do is you know visit the area. And there's nothing, there's, none of the vineyards were damaged, none of the none of the wineries were damaged, and none of Santa Barbara was damaged. There was some a lot of homes in Montecito area uh, were lost and and damaged. But you know, as far as visiting here and and and. And seeing the natural beauty of the place, especially this time of year, is just so beautiful. Uh, you, you, would, you wouldn't even know that something had happened. Well, most of Montecito is residential, so I did want to ask you, and this, this maybe is less about the mudslide than the fires, but I think, and I think, I think I know your answer, but I think a lot of people would be surprised that in terms of the impact of the wildfires, too— on the winemakers and the food producers and the food growers in the region, did it end up being actually pretty minimal thanks to the first responders? Or yeah, there was there was really no impact to any of the uh, you know the mountains mountains burned in wild chaparral uh, in our mountains. You know, it was uh, the largest wildfire in California history. It was uh, 
it was in excess of, of 258,000 acres, uh, and it burned for, uh, you know, months. Even after it burned by us, it was still burning in the back hills. Um, but no, the farming, there was, you know, we were in, we were in, the, the vines are, uh, in, in the winter, they're, they're not, they're not growing, and so there's, uh, there's no damage there, and, and, uh, what ash did drop onto the, the vineyards and the and the surrounding farmlands were only helping with the <laughs> their nutrients. They're strong in nitrogen, and um, uh, no, it really wasn't an impact to, to the farmers. The impact to businesses were strong during the fire and during after the flood when the highway was closed. You know, businesses were closed for for months, and for me, you know, I sell a lot of wine to the local restaurants, and those restaurants were closed, and our you know our sales just went to zero because we we you know I, we're we're a popular local winery here in Santa Barbara, and especially in Montecito, and uh, you know restaurants that were pouring my wines by the glass just stopped, and uh, we definitely felt it. We're, we're uh, a lot of the wineries. I think that's been the biggest uh, financial impact is just the restaurants and the wine stores being closed and the, and people not being able to get into the town. But that's picked right back up. When I, I tell you, people are people are visiting, and the weather's beautiful, and the beaches are great, and and the town's still just as is uh, dynamic and as fun as it's ever been. So, yeah, I was going to ask you: Is that actually? Would you say one of the best ways people could help if they want to help is to actually come and and visit? Yep, come visit the wineries up in the San Ynez Valley and visit the tasting rooms and restaurants in in the city of Santa Barbara. We both have a tasting room in Santa Barbara and at the winery in Buellton, so uh, you can you can visit either place. So, so it also really sounds like the vines, but partly because of the geography, and if many people don't know, Montecito is the south part of, south and coastal part of, of the San Inez Valley and Santa Barbara region, and so most of the vines are, uh, I guess, north and east of there, and so unlike in Napa, where there was some impact from the fire and the smoke on the grapes, was it the difference in the geography and the timing where it, it's not uh, Yeah, as- we were dormant, and they weren't. They had grapes on the vine, and there's a, there's an actual smoke that happens when ash and smoke uh, goes on grapes that are about to be picked to make wine on. Um, so it, it, it almost manifests itself to almost smelling like a, you know, when you have an old uh, old fire pit, when you, mm-hmm. you put it out, it has that sort of charcoal-y uh, smell to it. It's not good for wine. But we, you know, this, this, our smoke, uh, we're actually, the vineyards are primarily uh, north and west of Montecito. We have a very unique geography here is that our, you know, Montecito faces directly south, and we have the only transverse mountain range in North America that runs east and west. So that's why we have these dramatic temperature uh, differences. That's why Santa Barbara is a little tropical depression. We have oranges and bougainvillea and bananas. But you go over the hill 45 minutes, and we're growing. It's one of the coldest growing climates in all of California for grapes, for wine mm-hmm. grapes. And that's why our wines are tend to be a little bit higher acid, a little bit more uh, food friendly, a little lower in alcohol, which seems to be the trend these days. People wanting to not drink these big, massive alcoholic wines, um, and so that's we're sort of in the in the perfect niche for that. But you would think, you know, you think Santa Barbara, you think South Southern California, but you would, if you ever go over to the San Ynez Valley in the in the in our growing season, you'll just be amazed. The diurnals are. Shocking! We'll have a we'll have a, a 34 degree night and a 85 degree day. Uh, just just shocking how how much the temperature changes, which is really good for the grapes. They 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 stop ripening when it's that cold, 
and so we get a longer growing season and more complexity in the in the grapes and wine. Well, and that's good travel advice. If you're going to go wine tasting the Santa Ana's Valley, you need to bring layers because because you'll be should. cold and Everyone hot. Everyone here has lots of layers. It's uh, uh, you take them off as it gets hot, and you put them back on as it starts to get cool again. And it's also a great experience. Well. I think we're going to take a quick break, and that's a good segue, and we'll we'll lighten the mood and talk to Doug more specifically about his own winemaking and, and the latest that's, that's going on at his vineyard. So stay with us. We'll be right back. We're lucky at our house because our kids are great eaters. Leo, nearly 11, Lucy, who's 9, definitely enjoy their food and really like oatmeal. The other day, we held a little taste test of Bob's Red Mill organic oatmeal cups with flax and chia. It was pineapple coconut versus cranberry orange. While pineapple coconut was a big winner, apparently our kids prefer tropical, Lucy gave cranberry orange equally high marks. Leo's recommendation was most strongly for pineapple coconut. There was no mention of the flax and chia, but the bowls were empty. A reminder that when you're looking for flavor, healthy food, and quality all together, you can count on Bob's Red Mill. Every product is minimally processed from their stone mill in Oregon, especially for your table. Visit bobsredmill.com today and use the discount code JULIA in all caps for valuable savings on Bob's Red Mill products, including Leo and Lucy's taste test winning pineapple coconut organic oatmeal cups. While it's hard to comprehend the destruction the mudslides caused, as well as the psychological trauma from the fires, as Doug's been talking about, Santa Barbans are a hearty, positive bunch of people. Life carries on, and all that sea air and sunshine and great beauty really helps. So uh, on that note, Doug, do you want to talk more specifically about what's going on at Marjoram Wine Company? Um, Yeah, sure. You know, the the winery's up in Buellton. Um, We make about 16,000 cases a year uh, under the Marjoram uh, brand, and I consult for quite a few other wineries as well, some in this area and some uh, in uh, one winery in Virginia and um, one winery in the south of France. Uh, so I, I get around and get to taste a lot of wine and make a lot of different styles of wines for, for different, different customers. Uh, probably the newest thing in the, in the marjoram world is we have developed a, a new vineyard, about a 19-acre vineyard in San Inez Valley, which we planted uh, exclusively to Rhone varietals. So we have the five main Rhone varietals for red. That would be Syrah, Morved, Grenache, Cunoise, and uh, Senso, and then we have five the five white varietals, which are primarily Grenache Blanc, with Viognier, Marsan, Roussan, and Picpoul Blanc. And uh, we've wow. been making an M5, meaning M Marjoram, five grapes, red wine for 17 years now. And about for the last three years, we've been uh, making this new uh, wine, which we call M5 White, which is a Grenache Blanc-based wine. Uh, it's gotten an incredible uh, reception. Uh, people just have been just going crazy over it. We've, we've just sold out of the second vintage in about a month and a half. It was just on the cover of the Wine Spectator, which is always always nice Ooh, to, congratulations. to have happen. 
and um, that's that's sort of our, our newest newest project. The next release for M5 White will be the 17, and it'll be released in August of 18. And uh, in its everything we have in 17 is better than anything we've had in the previous two vintages. So I think the wine is just going to be even even better, and the the, the demand for the wine has has been way outstripping the supply. So we've been. We've been taking pre-orders on the wine, so when people can come come out, and when it comes out, they can it, make sure. Is that going to be an irony, do you think, of 20, 2017, is that despite the, the horrible end of the year weather and all of that, that the the, condi- the growing conditions and up to the harvest were actually pretty good? Oh, yeah. We didn't have any, excuse me, we had no issues in 17. We, you know, we were done with harvest by the end of October. The fires didn't start until December. Uh, we didn't get smoke up in up in Buellton at all. Um, we just didn't. Have yeah, maybe just fill people in on the geography again. So centric in people's minds uh, about California that that you know I know for a fact that I'll be pouring a seventeen wine somewhere, and someone's going to say, "Oh, this has some smoke taint," and I'm like, <laughs> you know, it's as far away from you can go to you could drive from um, Marseille to Rome. <laughs> and it's about the same distance as it is for us to drive to Napa. Napa is nine hours away by car. California is a huge state, and uh, it just it, what happens there doesn't impact us uh, uh, at all. Uh, except, mm, you know, there yeah. are friends and our colleagues, and we 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 raised money for Napa and Sonoma when they had their issue to send them to send them uh, money to for their victims, and they had a they had a horrible disaster, but. Uh, it was up there. It was very much surrounded about the wine area, uh, but down here it was it was, it was homes uh, in Montecito, about an hour south of our wine country. Yeah, I was going to say, can you fill people in on the the, the geography, which is like Buellton is way n- northwest of of Montecito, right? Exactly right. And then so our three valleys, which are the San Ynez Valley, the Los Alamos Valley, and the Santa Maria Valley, those are our three main growing valleys, and they run. East and West, and so we we what happens? It's like the Las Vegas, you know, thing. What happens in Montecito stays in Montecito. <laughs> well, and also the winds and all of that is blowing more east and southerly, so it was kind of pushing everything from the hill out to sea rather than up toward wine country. Yeah, if you look at some of the there's some satellite imagery of the what what causes these horrible fires are these winds called the Santa Ana winds, and they're very very strong, and they come from our high deserts and blow out into the ocean. So they're almost, you know, they'll go, they're mostly, they're primarily southerly. They flow, they come out from the desert and flow down our canyons and out to the ocean. And you can see these pictures of these big smoke plumes going out into the ocean off of, off of the coast of Santa Barbara. And um, that's where, uh, so we just didn't have the issues that, uh, that Nap and Sonoma had. But I know we're going to, I know I'm going to hear, I know I'm going to hear that word smoke, smoke taint more than, more than once when in, in fact we had none, of, none at all. Yeah. Well, hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll get, uh, some information out there to think about it. Cause even for me, I knew all of that stuff, but you do have to think it through. Okay. The grapes were harvested. It was the end of the year. It was after everything was in the barrels and that, um, but the, the confusion still there. We should also maybe say that also the Santa Ana winds, they blow every year. They're an annual occurrence. They happen a couple times. Yeah, and, and it's part of the, it's, it's that, that, that wonderful thing that makes our area cold and good for grapes is, um, is not is is what causes it. We have these huge temper, temperature differences between the high desert and our ocean, 
And so that's what causes these winds to blow because of, of, the, of the big, big that, that 30 to 40 to 50 degree diurnal change causes uh, that kind of dramatic weather pattern to happen. So it happens every year. Uh, but it also is one of the reasons why Santa Barbara is so beautiful, like right now. Uh, the ocean is crystal clear, and you can see the islands off the coast, and uh, that's because these winds blow out and make everything very, very clear. And, and you know, it's the, our best time of year is, is, is uh, spring and, and fall. Summer, summer times it gets a little bit of fog because the exact opposite happens. The cold air is brought in by the high desert rising, air rising, and then we have, we have foggy conditions. But... Well, and, and you were saying that it's the Santa Anas in part that give the climate, make the climate so magical for winemaking in the San Inez Valley. Yep, exactly right. So are you, are you still making Amaro at Marjoram Wine Company? Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad you asked that. I, Amaro is sort of a really wonderful pet project that we've been doing for now almost 10 years. Amaro uh, is, uh, means bitter in Italian. There were no, no, not really any American... Amaro producers until I, I started about uh, 10 years ago. I had discovered Amaro in, in Italy, and, and uh, some of the names that people might recognize would a Fernet Branca is an Amaro, a Verna is an Amaro. They're, they're, oh, these bitters, these bitter digestives are made in almost every country in the world. Um, they had, we, Americans really don't embrace it, um, but they, they will. Uh, you generally have it after dinner. And you have a little one ounce, you know, shot of it, and the the bitters and the enzymes in the wine with the herbs and the roots and the bark help your digestion. And so they, you drink it, and it helps you work through all the food and you've eaten, and, and you wake up the next morning, you're like, well, I feel pretty good. That's sort of been their their use. Uh, but what's really exploded for us with the with the Amaro is the acceptance by the um, the mixologists who are using them in cocktails. Instead of using Angostura bitters, they're using Mayamaro in Manhattans and Negronis and uh, various other cocktails to uh, to make these really uh, uh, fashionable cocktails. And probably the most fashionable cocktail right now in New York City, and you'll you'll hear it a lot now after this, is the Black Manhattan, which is essentially rye whiskey and amaro and a twist, and that's all it is. And it's a great, great cocktail. That is a great tip, the Black Manhattan, and um, and so the um, Amaro is—is is it actually not a liqueur because it's not fortified? It's it's a it's actually a fortified wine would be the category. Um, it's it is essentially we we pick grapes, uh, we for, we partially ferment them, and then we put in some of our our brandy that we have in the winery barrel aged brandy, and we stop the fermentation. Uh, and then we press that highly alcoholic, high, very sweet wine into barrel, and then we blend that with uh, with wine, regular regular red table wine made out of Sangiovese, and then we add herbs and roots and barks and orange peel. Uh, we add caramelized sugar, and we we do what's called a sort of a Solera system. We made the first batch, and then we bottled a little bit of that off the first batch, and then we replaced that with another batch, so that we always have the same amount as we as we as we go forward. We have about sixty barrels. We we uh, we we rack it and put it in a tank, and then we bottle a little bit off, and then we put more in. So it just there's always the same amount. We make uh, you know four or five hundred cases a, a year, um, sort of in an apothecary. Uh, style uh, 
glass bottle, and it's a very, very, very attractive uh, a bottle, and people are nuts over it. I mean, I tell you, Todd, it's the only time I feel like a drug dealer, because I, <laughs> I give people a little sample, you know, it's like, here, little girl, have some tomorrow, and they taste it, and they just, they, they, they have to have it, they have to buy it, and um, uh, it's so good, and, and, and you know, I don't think we could say it's good for you, but it's something that people use to as a as a digestive. And this also, it's great in cocktails. Is it actually all natural? Yeah, yeah. Well, we actually use organic uh, herbs. You know, we have it has rosemary, it has thyme, it has sage, it has marjoram, of course, in it. Um, it has lots of uh, uh, orange, pe- lots of orange peel in there. Uh, we use we use local barks as well as barks we buy and. Various various uh, local roots and roots that we buy, and we add this all into the into the wine and mix it up like a big, you know, like a witch's brew. And uh, the flavors are just exotic, and um, and people people love it. And uh, I don't think Americans have quite embraced digestives. Uh, I think they will because it's a it's a it's a really nice way to to live. And 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 at at the end of a very long dinner and a and just about to go to bed, you'd think it's sort of counterintuitive. You wouldn't think you'd have a very sweet, highly alcoholic um, beverage right before you went to bed, but it, it actually works wonders. You have, I mean, actually, we were at an Italian place here in London um, Saturday night, and these two older Italian gentlemen were ha- having one, and, but it was like a shot glass. They just Yeah, it's down. a little shot. You have an ounce or two uh, in a little shot glass, usually, and, uh, and it doesn't... Uh, it doesn't. Uh, it, 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 it's. Uh, it doesn't hurt. <laughs> <laughs> and can people still buy it? Because I know you make it in relatively limited quantities. Is it still available this year? Yeah, you can buy. It. It's available online, and we're. You know, we're. Marjorie Wine Company distributes to quite a few states. We're not in every state in the union, but we we ship it all over the all over the country. Um, uh, we as well as wine all over the country, but you know we're certainly uh, Manhattan is a huge Amaro customer for us, uh, as well as uh, you know Chicago we sell it, and New Orleans and Denver, and of course a lot of, everywhere in California we a lot of the bars have Amaro in their in their in their bar. And why don't you also tell us the different ways that uh, folks can can you mentioned you you have two tasting rooms in the, the Santa Barbara region. Yeah, so in downtown Santa Barbara, right next to the Winecast restaurant, um, we have a, a tasting room. We actually have two tasting rooms downtown Santa Barbara, uh, in the heart of Santa Barbara. I always used to say Winecast was the, the center of Santa Barbara because everything was across the street. The newspapers across the street, the courthouses across the street, the pharmacies across the street, the banks across the street. So El Paseo, it's called. It's really literally the center of Santa Barbara. And we have two tasting rooms in that complex there, which is the first shopping center that was built in the late 1800s in Santa Barbara. And then we've opened the winery on weekends. Uh, the winery never used to be open to the public, but now we're open on Saturday and Sunday. Um, and it's a neat experience. You can come actually see where we, where we make the wine and uh, see where we sit down every day and have lunch. Uh, we, we run the winery much like a European winery. We, the whole team uh, sits down and has lunch together. And, and uh, it's, a, it's a neat experience to come up on the, uh, on the weekends. And, and, and of course, that you're talking about coming to. We have events all all throughout the year. We do barbecues and we do uh, wine tastings and wine and food pairings at the winery and at the tasting room. Uh, since uh, I'm still associated with the restaurant, we were able to use the restaurant to do to do events and 
we, you know, people, we really like to explore the different ways of, of looking at wine, either doing vertical tastings where you taste, you know, 10 vintages uh, of M5, for example, and see how they've aged. And, and, and uh, But I really like doing things with food food pairing and, and seeing how, how, especially with my wine. My wine sometimes by itself, it could be a little bit lean. Uh, but then, you know, I've seen, I've been, I've done dinners where the woman in the front row is, you know, sort of sh- pursing her lips as she is tasting the wine, and I can tell she's not a big fan, but then we bring out the seared scallop with the saffron beurre blanc and, and crispy leeks, and she bites into that and drinks the wine and goes, this wine's great, <laughs> because that's what I make it for. I make, I make wine for the table. I don't make wine necessarily for wine critics to taste on their own. I make wine to go with food and wine that uh, people make that makes the food taste better. So that's what I tell that's what I tell chefs. You know, this, this, these kind of wines make your food taste better. A high alcohol, sweet, fat wine with a with a delicate fish dish is not a is it's not a good it's not a good match. That's true. And so just so you mentioned a bunch of things in, in, in fast order being so familiar with Santa Barbara. So w- one thing you're ta- talking about, your tasting room at the, the winery on the weekend is in Buellton. Yes, weekends in, in Buellton and then every day uh, in downtown Santa Barbara. And the restaurant you were talking about was the Winecast, which you helped found. Yeah, Winecast is downtown Santa Barbara. And I'm still consulting with the wine cask and involved with the wine cask. And uh, wine cask is a great restaurant. I've been involved with it for, good Lord, uh, 36 years. I always tell people I started it when I was 12. <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> well, you sound very youthful. And I think that it's fantastic to hear the optimism, I think, that just exudes an enthusiasm in your voice right now, despite everything you've gone through. And I think that that's really telling about the future. Well, we've had some time, and time is a wonderful healer. Uh, you're exactly right. Uh, a month ago, I, I couldn't talk about it without tearing up. And, uh, uh, and I, I think I just, the, the stories from that night and those next couple of days are so dramatic of, of people's of what some people endured and went through, and and uh, it was, you know, be definitely this the most uh, most dramatic thing that's ever happened in my life. Well, we're really pleased you could be here to to tell us about it. So we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, Doug's going to reveal his personal Julia moment. We'll be right back. Like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher, or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we segue into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. 
Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she's inspired them in their career. Doug, what's your Julia moment? Uh, <laughs> I have a lot of them. She was great. She was a big fan of mine, and she just uh, was a big supporter of the of the restaurant and the wine store. And she bought all her wine for me, and I always made I made sure I delivered it because I wanted to see her. But I think probably the funniest one was um, she was having dinner in the restaurant, and we had these little guest comment cards on the in the in the guest check. And she comes up, and they're leaving, and she, she's with uh, a couple other uh, folks. I think two of, two of her uh, family members. And she she pulls up and pulls me close as she can do because she was she was formidable. And she pulled me close as she whispered in my ear. She goes, "I'll get back to you on this." And I said, "Okay." And she they waltz out and they 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 leave the restaurant and I open up the guest check and there's no money, but there's an IOU. One hundred and seventy-three dollars and ninety-eight cents, Julia Child, <laughs> and I still have it. <laughs> so, so basically, Julia forgot her wallet that night. She forgot, forgot her wallet. She just wrote me an IOU, which uh, you know, which is the best thing ever. I treasure it. <laughs> and, and and do we owe you still the foundation, or did Julia make good on that? <laughs> no, I I have something I, I value far more than than one hundred seventy-three dollars. <laughs> Well, you you might have hit the record for for the the most unexpected and humorous Julia moment that we've had so far, but I still cannot be more grateful that you are here and in in such a short time in such a positive state of mind to to share all all that you've been through and all that that you're doing and going on. So thank you so much for well, agreeing thanks, to come uh, on the podcast. For having me. Thanks for listening, everyone else. We appreciate it. Let us know what you think about today's show. You can reach us via email or even send us a voice memo to contact juliachildfoundation.org. Please like us on Facebook. Search at Julia Child. You can follow the foundation on Twitter at Julia Child JCF, and I'm at T Shulkin, T S C H U L K I N. We're also on Instagram. Search Julia Child Foundation, all one word. To learn more about the Marjoram Wine Company, Go to marjoramwines.com, Marjoram's M-A-R-G-E-R-U-M, wines with an S. You can follow them on social media. Just search at, at Marjoram Wine on Facebook, Twitter, and or Instagram. Thanks to WGBH for the Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. If you like what you've been hearing, please subscribe. If you like the podcast, please give us a review. That really helps new listeners discover us. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please 
Join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.